begin this morning uh, with a scenario from the business world. Okay, a scenario from the business world. Let's see, there is a company that is in dire straits, a company that is facing the very real prospect of going bankrupt, of, of going under. So what the company does is it sort of charges one of its a most sort of visionary and reliable members of staff uh, with its, one of its most visionary employees with coming up with some sort of plan, you know? Let's say a sort of five-year rescue strategy. And this employee, he goes off and he does that. You know, he spends a lot of time working on this plan to try and save this company. And he does it. And he, he is then convinced that if the company adopts this strategy, that things can be turned around, that if they adopt this strategy, that the company will go from strength to strength. Then the big day comes. He hands over the strategy, his plan, to you know, all the bigwigs, all the sort of company directors, and they go off into the boardroom and they're pouring over this plan. And meanwhile, this employee, he's sitting in his office, and he's thinking, will they or won't? You know? Will they adopt this crucial plan or won't they? Well, really, that's the sort of thing that we're dealing with this morning when we come to Acts chapter 11. Because last, last time out, we looked at Peter and Cornelius. If you're here, I'm sure you remember that. You know, and we saw how Peter himself, this one guy, had seen how God had sort of crumpled the ceremonial law and all the food laws. Remember that? And how the, the, the Christian Jews were now free to sort of go out into the Gentile world and immerse themselves into it and spread the good news of salvation through Jesus Christ. Peter had seen that. One guy. But the question that's kind of hanging over this precise portion of Scripture this morning is whether it's just going to be Peter. Whether it's just going to be, you know, he and Cornelius just going to be an isolated event or whether the church as a whole is going to recognize and understand what's happened. Whether church is going to, let's say, adopt this strategy, grasp the opportunity to take the gospel into all the nations of the world. That's the question mark. Is the church going to see what's happened here? So, let's look at this. And if, if you like, yes, we're, we're going to have three headings here. And I'll I tell you how we'll do this. I will give you the three headings just now and just say something about these three headings very briefly. First of all, we're going to look at the assessment of the church. So, the first thing we're going to look at is how the church reacts what Peter's done with Cornelius and baptizing those Gentiles. How does the church react to that? So the assessment of the church. Then secondly, we will consider the attitude toward the church. So how Peter then behaves. The church reacts in a specific way toward Peter. How does he deal with that? So the attitude towards the church. And then the third heading is the acceptance of the church. So how the church eventually, by the end of this portion of scripture, not only comes to understand, but also comes to embrace the Gentile mission. 
because you've got the three headings. Assessments of the church, the attitudes toward the church, and then the acceptance by the church. Those are our three. Let's make a start. If you would, please have Acts chapter 11 open in front of you. And we'll consider, first of all, the assessment of the church. Now, we all know, don't we, that uh, news or gossip seems to sort of spread like wildfire throughout sort of Christian circles in the church, doesn't it? You know how it is in denominations where a church becomes vacant and it will maybe call a minister? And even before that minister has even heard about the call, it seems as though the whole denomination is aware of it. And they are all sort of chatting about it. We seem to love news, love gossip. Well, what we see in Acts 11 here is that is that, that is not just a sort of modern church phenomenon. Because we are told at the beginning of this chapter, think about this, that, that news of what had happened between Peter and Cornelius, the news of that had reached Jerusalem before even Peter had got back to Jerusalem. The news had reached it. It spread like just, just like wildfire here. But what we're concerned with here is, is, is really how that news was greeted by the church. How did the church respond eh, to these Gentile converts? In fact, I'll tell you what, let's, let's slightly change it. Let me ask you, how would you hope that we as a congregation would respond if we heard about this sort of stuff. If we heard about, imagine we heard today somebody came in, a visitor told us about a mini revival in a nearby town. If we heard just like this that a man had been saved and on the same day his family had been saved, all of his family. Imagine we heard that today and that he invited all of his friends around his house that day. And all of them had been saved and been baptized. Imagine we heard about that. How would you expect us to react to that? How would you expect the, the church in Jerusalem here to react to that? With delight? Do you think? Would we, we, would we be rejoicing in Jesus Christ? Have a look at the end of verse 2. The circumcised believers, what did they do? They criticized Peter. They, they, they enjoyed. They criticized this man. And then, this is the important thing here. Note what it was that they criticized him for. Because it's not for baptizing Gentiles, is it? I mean, these, the church here is not even thinking about salvation. They criticize him. Look at the end of verse 3. They criticize him for eating. Not for baptizing the Gentiles, but for eating with the Gentiles. You see, they're, they're concerned with the breaking of the ceremonial law. So I wonder, friends... Do you see that the problem here? At this point, the church in Jerusalem, it was much more concerned with identity and tradition rather than the salvation of the lost. It was concerned with identity and tradition rather than the salvation of the lost. Now, what, what do you think? Do you, do you think that's too harsh? Do you think, well, come on. You know, these traditions, this identity, this was incredibly important to the Jerusalem church, to these Christians at the time. I mean, these things, the food laws, these were things that the, the, the church, these, these, these people had been brought up with since childhood. Do you think it's too harsh? 
on, do you, do you not see this? This church's attitude to, to news of salvation, do you not see how desperately disappointing it is? And so what I want us to do just now is just to think about and compare that reaction, that church in Jerusalem with ourselves here at London City Presbyterian Church. Think about this, please. The problem in Jerusalem, as we're saying, is there is too high a regard for identity, and that was hindering the work and the witness of Jesus Christ. Too high a regard for identity, tradition, and it's hindering the work of the gospel. Now, we're saying that about Jerusalem, but could that be said about us in here? Could that be said about LCPC? I mean, are there aspects of our tradition? Are there maybe aspects of our identity, maybe stuff that we have been brought up with since childhood, that we are becoming more attached to than we are to, to the very gospel of Jesus Christ itself? Could that be said of us? Is our concern for the way that we do things in church, is our concern for that greater than for the people we know who are, to be blunt, are going to hell? And let me suggest that what we're talking about there is a particular hazard in a city like ours. See, follow me here. We uh, all know uh, that there are so many churches in London, aren't there? I mean, you just need to wander around London for, for half of a day and you see that there's just millions of churches all over, over London. There's churches everywhere you look. And, and because of that, what, what happens is that we are tempted to, to cherish and promote that which differentiates our congregation from all the other congregations out there. Do you see what I mean? We are tempted, because there's so many churches out there, we're, we're tempted to say, ah, but, ah, that's fine, but we're the, the congregation that uses a presenter and it's singing. We're that congregation. Or we're that congregation who uh, focuses on hospitality. That's us. Or we're the, the, the congregation that, you know, sometimes, you know, we'll make sure we, we dress formally for church. Now, do you see that the danger with that is that these aspects of our identity, these traditions that we have, they become so loved and so inflated that there's the danger that they supersede our concern for the advance of the gospel of Jesus. Don't they? I mean, there is the danger that we begin to worship those things, the things that set us apart, rather than worshipping Christ himself. You see, in Jerusalem, the news of Gentile conversion was met with negativity. It was met with disdain. Even why? Because the church was focused on identity and tradition rather than identity in Jesus Christ. So hear this. You must preach. That is not happening here. You must preach that our supreme concern is not maintaining or even imposing traditions from our past, that our supreme concern is glorifying God through the salvation of the lost, that we must preach that it is our majestic Savior, Jesus Christ, 
from the concern and the affection of London City Police and the So we've seen that the church greets the news of, of Gentile salvation with this rather bizarre sort of negativity. But as we move on, <coughs> what we need to think about next is what Peter does about that. How does he, how does he deal with it? I mean, see it from his point of view. You know, he's, he's seen all these people, these Gentiles, saved and familiar to He's gone through all that stuff. Comes back to the church surely expecting joy and he's and he's met with criticism so the second point is the attitude towards the church here so what, what goes down what what happens uh, after the church meetings here well if, if your bibles are open you'll see that from i think verse four onward peter chooses to respond to this criticism that's leveled against him now, what Peter does is he's criticized by the church. So he goes in a, a, a rather detailed and orderly account for the congregation in Jerusalem of everything that happened with Cornelius. He goes into every kind of detail about it. Now, here's the thing. Just for a second, can I ask you to hold a thought? We've seen what he does. Consider what he, what he didn't do when criticized for a moment, okay? Just hold that question in mind. You know, we've seen that he responds to the criticism of the church. Yeah, think about what he doesn't do. Hold that thought for a second. You see, our, um, our Saturday night TV has changed again, hasn't it? And love it or loathe it, the X Factor is, is back on on a Saturday night. Now, if there is any entertainment at all to be found in the X Factor, I am not sure that there is. But if there is, it's not when the, the contestants go away to the judges' houses, is it? I mean, really detailed. You know? And it's not even when there's a fantastically great singer on the X Factor again. You know? Okay, so what? The best thing, the entertainment is found in the people's reaction when Simon Cowell tells them that they are rubbish. That's when it gets entertaining, isn't it? You know, Simon Cowell will say to them, you cannot sing a note. And some of them will respond with absolute disbelief, won't they? You know, mouths wide open. Are you kidding me? You know? Some of them, even better, when Simon gives them the rubbish, some of them will just lose the plot altogether, won't they? And enraged, they will sort of storm out of the audition room and fling the doors open and they'll storm home angry. Now, what did I say a moment ago? What do we have to hold in our minds? Think about what Peter didn't do when he was criticized by the church. That is what he didn't do. I mean, he's criticized by the church. And he does not huff. He does not lose the plot. He does not storm out of the church saying, right, I'm away. I'm going to set up my own church. I've had enough of you. He doesn't say that. And isn't that all the more remarkable when we think about who it is? It's Peter. I mean, this is a leader of the church that has been criticized. In fact, this is one of Jesus' inner circle. Somebody who has been tortured and hit in the past for the name of the church. And despite who he is, 
when he is criticized here, what does he do? Gently, humbly, lovingly, he stands, he takes the criticism from the church, and he explains what he was doing. Now, here's the thing. I wonder, do you see why Peter does that? Do you see why Peter responds with such humility at this point? Can I, can I suggest it? it is for two reasons. Can I suggest that he responds with such love there because he sees and knows the importance of the church on one hand, but he also knows the importance of this precise moment for the church. Now, I've said that he sees the importance of the church. Well, what, what, what does that mean? Well, Peter responds like this with, with, with such humility. You know, he, he realizes that the church is not just a sort of gathering of Christians getting together in you know, a wider social circle and making friends. Peter sees that the church is bigger than that. Peter sees that the church is something that God has planned and planned eternally. Is it that God has planned that we would not be saved in isolation? That we would not be saved to just go and Peter sees that. He sees the glory of what God is doing in the church. And so if the church criticizes him, he stands and he takes it with respect and love. And then on top of it, what was the other thing? He sees the immense importance of this precise moment for the church. And he does. He he really gets the situation here, doesn't he? He sees that the church is the church that has been chosen by God to spread the good news of salvation to the world. The church has been part of it. And he knows that if he stands there, no matter what, sees the significance of it so he stands and he takes it and he responds with love and so because of that let let me put this to you if if you're a christian this morning let me put this to you more than our parents i think and uh, more than our grandparents um, we today really have to challenge ourselves and i think as well we need to repent of our attitude to the church of jesus christ you see unlike in sort of previous generations today we live in a what do you like to call it let's say a a consumerist we live in an individualistic society don't we where what the individual what the person wants is absolutely supreme and king And do you see what has happened in the past 10 years, past 15 years? See that attitude, that consumerist, individualistic attitude, that worldly, ungodly attitude? It has already infiltrated the life of the church and our attitude to the church. I would suggest for the first time in church history, we now view things like church membership as 
we look at congregations in a consumerist way. We say, no, that's a fault there. That's a fault there. That's a fault there. Rather than viewing congregations through God's intention, that we throw ourselves into the life of the congregation so that we can serve him, so that we can glorify him as a church. Do you see it? So let me challenge you about this. If you're in this situation, if you live in London, so not for the visitors, you're off the hook, but if you live in London and it looks as though you are going to be here for the next, I don't know, six months to a year, then you can know two things. One, if you're a Christian, you know that God, at this point in your life, God wants you in this city. But the other thing you know whether it be this congregation or another congregation, at this point in your life, God wants you to be properly, formally, and committed to your congregation in this city. Why? Well, because as Peter can clearly see as he's standing in front of that congregation in Jerusalem, it's because God has chosen the church. He has chosen the church. He has chosen congregations to be his vehicle of mission to the ends of the earth. Friends, do you see it? Perhaps we should repent that as Christians, we do not show the love. We do not show the humility. We do not show the allegiance to the the church of Jesus Christ that is so clearly on display in Acts chapter 11. So the assessment of the church, the attitude towards the church. Thirdly and lastly, the acceptance by the church. And to keep you awake, I will say that I am going to mention a change that we are going to make to one of our meetings as a congregation. So, listen up. We have uh, seen so far Peter return from Caesarea from his meeting with Cornelius, he returns to criticism from the church. We've seen Peter kind of humbly explain what has happened with Cornelius. He explains that to the church here. Then what we find is is something fantastic, really, at the end of this chapter, at the end of this portion of scripture. Because as Peter talks to the church and explains what's happened, the church begins to understand. The church begins to see the implications of the gospel of Jesus Christ here. Do you see how it happens though? Like Peter explains, it's actually, it was God that initiated everything with Cornelius. It was God that gave the vision. You know, it was God that prompted me to to go with the Gentiles. It It was God that came down in the person of the Holy Spirit here. He says all that to the church and the church sees and the church, you see how it ends? The church is rejoicing. The church is praising God. I just want to end by, it's very simple, just want to note two things in the text for us to see here. Like the, the first one is, well, what was the church rejoicing that was, that was opened up to the Gentiles? What was it that they could see? Look in your Bibles at the last phrase in verse 18, the very last phrase. What are they rejoicing in? What was it opened up? It says that 
God had granted to the Gentiles repentance unto life. That is why the church was rejoicing. The church was rejoicing that new life was available to these people. You know, the church is rejoicing that eternal life beginning right then was available to, to these people. And how, how would this new eternal life come? Through, what does it say, repentance. Get that right. That is not through sort of asking God to forgive you for one specific sin. But this new life was available by a radical turning from sin and turning to Jesus Christ with everything that you are. Now, let me repeat that for you. I know there are people in here who are unsaved, who are not Christians. Let me repeat that to you. The church here is rejoicing. And it is rejoicing in repentance unto life. And that being available, not just for Jews, let's get this right, not just for Cornelius, not just for his family, they're rejoicing because they could see hundreds of years from now, or from then, they could see that repentance unto life is available to you. That's eternal life available to you this morning. And then the second thing, do you see where that repentance unto life comes from? It's the very same phrase, look, verse 18, same phrase. They praise God saying, what? God had granted repentance unto them. You see it? God grants this. We're confronted there with the reality, get this right, the reality that salvation is not something that you inherit from your mum. That salvation doesn't sort of filter to you if you attend a church. It's the reality here that salvation or repentance unto life is not something that, that we earn or we merit somehow. What does it say? It says God granted. That salvation is something that is entirely in the control of God. And so because of that, and this is how we end, do you see the implication for Christians for this congregation? Like, you know, if we've seen anything in the first part of Acts, we've seen that an implication of the gospel is that we go out and tell people, isn't it? I mean, it's evangelism and witness all the way through Acts. But do you see the other implication? If God grants salvation, then as a church and as his people, we must ask him for it, mustn't we? We must bow and we must ask God to save. And so we change a meeting in congregational life. What we're going to do, it's, it's a subtle, but it is a significant change. From now on, from today onwards, the Sunday evening prayer meeting is not going to be this sort of casual unspecific and I hope poorly attended meeting no longer is it going to be like that from now on we are going to gather and we are going to focus a prayer meeting on one thing and one thing only we're going to focus it on evangelism now we're going to meet in this room tonight at 6 not 25 past 6 but at 6 o'clock 
And we are going to talk about opportunities that we have had to speak about Jesus Christ over the past seven days. We are going to then talk about opportunities we hope to have in the next seven days. And then what we're going to do. We are going to lay those before a sovereign God in prayer. And we are going to ask God to work and to save people. And I say to you, come. If you're a member of the church, come. If you're a visitor here, we are around tonight, please come. You won't be put on the spot and you won't be asked to speak. But friends, come gather and ask God to save. Why? Because scripture tells us in Jonah chapter 2 and verse 9, you know the verse I'm sure, salvation is from the Lord. But scripture also tells us in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 7, ask, ask, and it will be given to you. Friends, in Acts chapter 11, we have the church here again, and it is just rejoicing in the worldwide implications of, of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, we're going to close our, our service just now in the same way that we always do. We're going to pray. So I say to the Christians here, as we close prayer, you pray just now. You pray. And you ask God to save right now. And I say to the people who are outside of Jesus Christ this morning, as we pray, come to Jesus. Come to see the glory of what God has done in granting even the Gentiles repentance unto life. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we praise you that you are a sovereign Lord. We praise you that you are in control of salvation. We praise you that salvation is of the Lord. But Lord, we know that you desire for people to turn to you in repentance. And how we look to you and we ask you as a congregation that that would happen. That the Holy Spirit would work even this morning and even at this moment. And that shackles would be thrown off. That sin would be forgiven. And that there would be life and life eternal beginning now. Lord, hear these prayers. In Jesus' name, amen.